We read a few words from the Psalms as we begin our prayer this morning. I will give thee thanks. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Father, in our hearts, we lift up a song to you this morning, a song of praise and thanksgiving, a song of gratefulness that you have blessed our lives. And no matter what our physical circumstances may be this morning, we know that all is well with our souls in you. And so we come to you this morning as the God who cares for our every need, as the God who is leading us beside the still waters, and Father, as the one who leads us into green pastures, that we will drink deeply of you, that your word will, be, will speak to our hearts and help us to understand you and what you've called us to do. Father, truly, as we'll see and are seeing in the lives of Ruth and Boaz, you've called us to reflect the nature of Christ into this world as they did into the world of their day, as God was seen clearly in their behavior and their attitude. And so, Father, I pray that you will be our strength today. I ask that as your word is proclaimed, you will glorify your name and you will change lives by your mighty power. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the third chapter of Ruth, as you're doing that, let me just remind you of the geography of where we're at. Bethlehem, which is the whole story of Ruth after you get to the end of the first chapter into the second chapter, takes place in one place, and that is at Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And right here is Bethlehem. It's just a few miles south of Jerusalem. In fact, today, it's, it's only about four or five miles uh, between the two cities because Jerusalem has grown tremendously over what it was back in the day we're talking about. Of course, the day we're talking about, Jerusalem was just a tiny little town. You could have put it in Reading multiple times in terms of its area. But Jerusalem, of course, eventually would grow to be a, a larger city. Bethlehem always has been a small town. Today, uh, the population is probably 40,000. But in the day we're talking about, it was certainly not even 4,000. It was a very small town. Uh, most likely had walls, certainly had walls, because the gate is mentioned uh, in, the, in the book of Ruth. So here we are, uh, right here at this spot. We're directly west of the northern end of the Dead Sea here. And we're at um, an elevation of roughly 2,500, a uh, little less than that, feet above sea level there at Bethlehem. So as we read the account this morning, beginning Ruth chapter 1, verse 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with, those with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say I will do. When the urgency of the harvest time was passed, the farmers, such as Boaz, could focus 
on the next process in preparing the grain, and that is, of course, the threshing and winnowing of the grain before it can be prepared for pounding into flour. Whereas Ruth could, in a very short time, as she did when she first was gleaning in the field and took home nearly an ephah of grain, she was able to take what she had gathered that day and to thresh it and, and to separate the grain and take it home in a relatively short time because she was dealing with a small amount of grain. But when it comes to the large-scale operation, such as a man of Boaz wealth uh, would be operating, uh, why it took a while to thresh the grain. When we were, one of the times that we were in the Holy Land, we saw a sledge that was used in those days to thresh the grain. It was a wooden sled-like thing which had stones embedded actually into the runners and the bottom of the sledge. And this would then be drug around over the grain that had been scattered to knock the kernels out, or loose at least, from the, um, from the chaff. And then, of course, the winnowing would occur by the tossing, and you've seen, certainly seen pictures of this, sort of the pitchfork tossing of it all into the air, and supposedly it would be a breezy day, and all the chaff would blow away, and the heavier grain would fall back onto the threshing floor. And this is the process through which each farmer had to go. It was a time-consuming process. Uh, we have actually seen, and, and you too, if you've been over there, probably have seen threshing floors. There's especially not a good one there at Gibeon, which is located just to the north of Jerusalem over here, the site of Gibeon, where there's a, an old well there that goes all the way back to the pre-Israelite times. But outside the city of Gibeon, there is a series of threshing floors, which are still used even today by the people in that particular region. Uh, you probably are aware of the fact that most Israelis, modern Israelis, use modern methods. But a lot of the Arabs who live there still use age-old methods of taking care of the grain. Thus, like the other farmers in the region around Bethlehem at that particular time, Boaz was, had moved from the harvesting stage, and Ruth had, of course, been doing the gleaning, now to the actual threshing stage of the barley in this particular instance. And as I mentioned to you last time, the wheat crop usually came in uh, four to six weeks after the barley crop. And so you can kind of work through the barley and then you start the process all over with the wheat. A threshing floor was generally a flat, somewhat circular area that was usually made of, rock. it was either a rock surface or it was made of hard packed earth and it would be on that surface that this threshing and this winnowing would take place. Now Boaz, being a man, as we've already noticed, who came out to check on the welfare of his workers and to guide them along through the day, would also do the same, supervise the actual threshing of the grain and participate in it himself. In fact, the wording here is that he was out winnowing the grain, which probably meant that he personally was participating along with his workers in carrying out that particular activity. And so Naomi knew exactly where he'd be found because she knew where the threshing floor of Boaz was. Well, she hatched a plan by which she hoped to be able to link the kinsman redeemer and leveret marriage together. And so she introduced the plan to Ruth with the words, shall I not seek security? And, and the word also means rest. Uh, for you, that it may be well with you. 
Naomi at one time, and you remember that when we were in the first chapter, Naomi had multiple times urged Ruth, remain here in Moab. Don't come with me because if you come with me, who knows, your future might be just caring for an old lady for the rest of your life. Uh, why don't you stay here because you can find a husband and you can get on with life and have that which is the delight of a woman in this world at this time. But Ruth insisted to go on with Naomi to her land. Naomi, of course, couldn't see that there would be much hope for Ruth in the land of Judah of finding a husband there before the reasons that we have discussed before. Now, because Boaz has been discovered to be a godly and kind man, and he had taken a genuine interest in Ruth herself, Naomi saw that what she had thought was impossible might very well be possible. And of course, you and I know both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are told that God is the God of the impossible. Things that just don't happen except in movies can happen in reality when God is involved. And that seems to be what is happening here, at least as Naomi sees it at this moment. Now, the law of leveret marriage, that is where a man dies and leaves behind a widow with no children, the law of leveret marriage obligated the, the, a brother of the dead man to marry the widow and to raise up a son to the name of the dead man. Well, the law of leveret marriage was interpreted in this particular day more broadly. It didn't just in, involve a brother, but a, the nearest male relative could actually perform the leveret law here, function according to the leveret law. And so, obviously, in the mind of Naomi, this has been extended to Boaz, who is not the brother of Elimelech or of Malan and Kilian. If Boaz could be pers persuaded, now this is what's going through Naomi's mind, if Boaz could be persuaded to perform the function of the Goel, and that is to redeem the land that Naomi was going to have to sell because of her poverty, and at the same time perform the function of leveret marriage and to raise up an issue to Malin and, and thus also to Elimelech, then all that had seemed to be lost would now be regained from Naomi's perspective. So what we could say is that a seemingly hopeless situation was becoming more hopeful in Naomi's eyes. It needs to be understood that the success and that the hope did not come from Naomi's scheming. Naomi's plan did not force this to happen. We make plans, but it is God who, who carries things through according to his will. We, we all know the old phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men. It, it wasn't the work of Ruth that brings about what is about to take place. It is God working through the whole situation. God was bringing about what he had in mind all the time, but Naomi and Ruth simply couldn't see it up to this point. All they could see was the hopelessness of the situation. And of course, in God, there is no such thing as hopelessness. As we are often reminded, God does not floodlight the path in front of us, usually. He lights the step before us one step, two steps at a time. He, he, he gives us a flashlight, not a floodlight, in order to follow his will. 
And so Naomi and Ruth could only see what seems apparent, but they couldn't see down the line that God had all of this planned in spite of the fact we're going to discover that it happens very quickly, actually, in, in a relative short period of time. Now, I was thinking about this this morning. This particular passage came to my mind that is uh, related to these ideas. And you know it well. Let me just read a few verses from the 37th Psalm. Psalm 37, uh, verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he that is God delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. This passage really seems to, to fit very well in with this particular book and the story that we're reading about here. When he falls, he is not hurled headlong. When, when tragedy seemed to come to Naomi and Ruth, they were not destroyed. There was still hope in God. And God would carry them through because we are told He holds our hand. He holds our hand. Sometimes when the dark hour comes, we have a tendency to forget that. And to forget that He's there with us and He cares about us in every situation. But Naomi and Ruth are beginning to see this to be a truth in their lives. Naomi gave very in, uh, specific instructions to Ruth as we read there this morning. She was to take a bath. Now, that doesn't mean she got in the shower, you know, and sang and did all those good things because they didn't have showers in those days. But to, to wash up, she was to anoint herself with aromatic oils uh, so that she would smell well. And then she was to put on her best clothing, which, of course, given their status, was not anything very radical, but nevertheless, uh, something that probably was attractive. She was to become as physically appealing to Boaz as possible. Not that it was that means that was going to be used to draw Boaz, but it was because, hey, let's be real about the whole thing. It helps. <laughs> <laughs> then she was to go to the threshing floor where Boaz was working, and she was supposed to stay out of sight. Now, if you go to Bethlehem today, you're going to say, How'd you do that? <laughs> because it's really barren around Bethlehem today. But we're talking about 3,000 years ago. And Israel of 3,000 years ago was very different from what Israel is today. Israel of 3,000 years ago was forested. Israel of 3,000 years ago was a much greener country. There, were, there was water in virtually all of the, what are known today as wadis, which are largely dry today. It was, a, it was a better land, at least physically, than it is today. Now, Israel is, is today trying to recoup some of that. They've been in a process of planting trees in the country to try to restore some, some of that uh, water-holding capacity for the hills so that everything wouldn't turn dry shortly after the rains stop. I think I mentioned this to you before. If you stand in the Judean wilderness, and look out across that and you think, David herded sheep out here? How could he do that? It's, it's like the Mojave out there. But it wasn't as bad, I guess we could say, then as it is now. Uh, it, it just suffered through centuries of neglect. When Israel was shoved out of the land during the days of the Romans, the land went into neglect, and, and it largely was a, a battlegrounds and a passageway for nation after nation and empire after empire, and, 
And of course, during the days of the Ottomans, the Ottomans did not take good care of that particular region. And as a result, uh, it has seriously decayed. So you wonder how in the world could she sneak out to the threshing floor? If you look out today, you'd say, man, I can see five miles out over there, 10 miles out over there. How could anybody hide? But obviously there were trees and uh, other things to um, give protection on the landscape at that particular time. So she was supposed to remain, now get the, get the picture here. City gates closed at sunset and opened at sunrise, or I should say shortly after sunset they closed when it started to get dark, and shortly before sunrise when it was light enough the gates would open. You didn't leave the gates sitting open at night because anybody could come into the city. So she had to be able to get out of the city before the gates closed, and so she had to go out into the countryside and hide somewhere, or be inconspicuous at least, until it was time for her to slip onto the threshing uh, field uh, floor of Boaz. Now, of course, she had to get there. It was probably, we don't know how far the threshing floor was from the city, but probably it was in a, within a few miles, maybe a mile, two, maybe as many as five. But, but she had to uh, be able to make that passage and also stay out of sight and not be recognized until the right hour for her to slip onto the threshing floor. After he was asleep, she was instructed, move out onto the threshing floor and lie down at his feet. Concerning this, commentator Joyce Baldwin says this, After the traditional feast, at the end of the day of harvesting, Boaz might be expected to retire in good humor and sleep soundly. By removing the cloak that acted as a blanket from the feet of Boaz, she would ensure that he would eventually wake up and notice her at his feet. She would then be able to put before him in privacy the claim she wished to make. Now, of course, reading this, it all seems a bit strange, I think, to us. I'm supposed to slip out and lie down at his feet. The instructions probably seemed a little strange to Ruth, too. But they turned out to bring about the result that Naomi hoped for. And we're going to see this as we move on to the next passage. Ruth and Boaz. Now, this was known to Naomi and it was known to all the people of the area that Ruth and Boaz were people of integrity. As a result, Naomi had no reticence in giving these instructions to Ruth, knowing that as Ruth went out there, she would not bring on any immorality and Boaz would not participate in any immorality. So she had no fear that this would lead to anything other than exactly what she hoped it would produce. But in order to avoid all appearance of evil, Ruth was to come and go in the darkness to avoid all suspicion because uh, correspondence from the National Enquirer are always everywhere, even in those days. And in, in small towns, in small towns, word travels extremely rapidly. And of course, their good name could be easily besmirched if they were not careful. Well, let's read on <clears throat> from verse 6. Ruth 3, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. Behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true, I am, I am a close relative's, relative, however, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. So lie down until morning. Ruth had come to love and to trust her mother-in-law to such an extent that she does not seem even to question the plan. Now you tell me, I'm supposed to bathe, put on my best clothes, put on aromatic oils, I'm supposed to go out, the, out, out of the city before the gate shuts, I'm supposed to hide in the countryside until after dark, I'm supposed to find, well I need to find the threshing field of Boaz, the threshing floor of Boaz of course before it gets too dark, and then hide until he's gone to sleep. And then I'm to go out on the threshing floor like a ghost and lie down and uncover his feet and lie down there. This is what you're telling me to do. <laughs> okay, fine, I'll do it. She simply obeyed. And what is interesting is that everything went according to Naomi's plan. Boaz, wrapped in his cloak, was sleeping at the end of his pile of barley that had been winnowed. He, of course, was guarding the barley. Uh, there were thieves in those days, just as are thieves today. And, of course, this is taking place during the period of the era of the judges, when there, every man did what was right in his own eyes, so you better be out there uh, protecting that which is yours. Whether there was anybody else on the threshing floor, we're not told. It's possible there might have been somebody else somewhere around. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have been so con concerning that uh, Ruth uh, do this all very secretly. But apparently nobody within earshot, at least, of Boaz at that particular time. After he was sound asleep, now how did she know that? Was he snoring? Maybe she, at that point she would have gone back and said to Naomi, I think we better find somebody else. <laughs> Who knows? But after what seemed like an appropriate time, Ruth slipped out onto the threshing floor. Now think about this for a minute. If the threshing floor was made of packed earth, she probably easily could have slipped out very silently. If it was made out of rock, uh, she would have had, I think, to have taken her sandals off because crunching grain <laughs> is going to make noise if you're squashing it uh, as you're walking out there uh, on rock. So anyway, whatever the case was, she slipped silently onto the threshing floor. She pulled the cloak back off his feet and then she laid down at his feet, probably, I would suspect, perpendicularly to his feet. Well, in the middle of the night, he awakes. He says, My feet are cold. What's going on here? So he sits up to cover his feet and Whoops, there's a body <laughs> lying at his feet. And what is interesting, it says, the scripture says, the translation here says that he was startled to find someone laying at his feet or lying at his feet. But the Hebrew word, which is translated startled, is usually translated as trembled or terrified. Now, you think of it. You're sound asleep and you suddenly your feet are cold and you, you, know, you know you're totally alone out here in the middle of the countryside and you, you slip on and there's somebody there. It's going to be a bit frightening because your mind isn't completely clear yet. And so I think he was uh, shocked awake, to put it mildly. 
Apparently there was enough light, whether from the stars, possibly the moon, uh, maybe a campfire still burning a little bit over here, maybe even a lamp was kept somewhere, for him to see that there was a figure lying at his feet. Now did he know right away that it was a woman? He certainly didn't know who it was or else he wouldn't have asked the question. But did he know whether it was a male or, or a female? Well, I think if he used his nose, he would have. He would have smelled the aromatic oils uh, that were coming, uh, which was not the typical male odor of that particular place and time. And there might have been enough light for him to see that the garment she was wearing was a typical female garment, whatever the case. After we recovered his composure, he said, Who are you? And Ruth, I don't think, had slept at all. She probably was lying there the whole time uh, wondering when this guy was going to wake up and, and worrying about how this was all going to work out. She did identify herself and I think her, her mind raced and, and I think there was both hope and fear mixed. Hope that this was going to work out according to Naomi's plan. Fear that she had done something wrong, that this would be viewed as untoward, as forward, as, as inappropriate. And I think she was cold. Think about it, put it all together here. We're, we're talking about springtime, probably May. Now in, in May it can be fairly warm, but look, you're up 2,500 feet, it's nighttime. You're lying on a rock or a hard-packed earth. You have no mattress under you, you have no pillow, uh, you just have your cloak, uh, and you're worried about things. You're probably cold, and I think she was probably cold there. I, I think she felt that she was out of place for several reasons. First of all, she, she, certainly this went through her mind. And I think we must remember, this cannot be viewed totally within the framework of just human interaction here. There is a spiritual dimension to this. Not only is God working this out, but the enemy is doing his best to thwart it. And so he's probably putting thoughts in her mind or trying to whisper in her ear saying, you're a fool, you shouldn't be out here. This is all going to turn out to be a disaster. All kinds of things were impacting her. And, and certainly to her mind came the fact that there were at least four strikes against her. First of all, she was an alien. Second of all, she was a woman. And women, as I mentioned to you, in that society were considered very inferior to males. Thirdly, she was of a different class than he. He was a wealthy man, a man of substance, uh, a man who would sit in the gate of the city. She was, in effect, on welfare. And she was much younger than he. And that made a big difference, too in that particular society. All these things going through this young lady's mind. Yet God was there. She identified herself as his maid Ruth. And as Naomi had coached her, get to the point, lady. <laughs> and so rather than small talk or sputtering around, she simply said, spread your covering over your maid, for you are our Goel. Now, the word translated covering here in this particular passage is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And nearly 80% of the times that it is used, it is translated wing or wings. Spread your wing over us, your wings over us, which is a totally different meaning than just, hey, take a little bit of your cloak and put it over me because I'm cold, you know, kind of deal. Now, it's translated covering here because of the implication that his covering would help keep her warm too. And that had other meanings, as we'll see here in a minute. However, she meant it in the sense of spread your wings of protection over me and over Naomi because you are our kinsman 
Redeemer. You are the one who is obliged by the law of God to care for us. He understood exactly what she meant. And he realized that she was asking him, point blank, she was saying to him, you are obliged to redeem the property that Naomi is being forced to sell and to marry me in order to raise up a heritage to Elimelech and Malan. This is your moral and legal responsibility. Charles Pfeiffer, in his commentary on Ruth, says, the custom of a man's placing a corner of his garment over a maiden as a token of marriage is known among the Arabs even today. Well, the ever-gallant Boaz allayed all of Ruth's fears that she might have acted in a way that was improper or too bold. He doesn't say to her, my, my, you're a bold lady, aren't you? <laughs> or, oh, no, 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 he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he blesses her immediately in the name of Yahweh, and then he dumps praise on her. Her refusal to chase after younger men is noted by him. He's implying that she could have chased after younger men for her own delight and her own desire, you know, to, to, to marry a younger man and someone that would be more suitable in maybe in her image. But instead, she waited so that she could bless and comfort Naomi by raising up children to her husband, Elimelech, thus to her heritage. And this was seen by Boaz, and he says it specifically, as a greater kindness than all that she had done for Naomi before. She had committed herself to Naomi. She had served as a daughter to Naomi. She had worked in the field for Naomi. And yet this willingness to not chase after a younger man, but to look to an older man as the one to carry out the function for her mother-in-law was viewed as a greater kindness than all of the others. Now, his reference to younger men tells us something very clearly about Boaz. He was an older man. Personally, I think that Boaz was probably a widower. Uh, he had been married before, most likely. It's very unlikely that this man has grown to this point in life without ever having been married since he was prominent, he was wealthy. He was uh, a man who would, uh, was probably uh, double or triple her age somewhere in that neighborhood, at least double, and possibly triple her age. She was very young, of course. Uh, Ruth was probably roughly 20-ish, maybe, maybe early 20s, maybe late teens, depending on how long she had been married to Malin. We're not told uh, about that. And of course, even in those days, although it was much more common, uh, no woman sat at home saying, oh, I sure hope I can marry somebody as old as my grandfather, you know, I mean. Even in those days, there was this kind of an idea, you know, that you, you'll find Prince Charming, even though they were almost all committed by the parents to each other before uh, they were old enough to make any choice, often when they were infants, sometimes even before they were born. Well, that didn't usually happen because they weren't sure. No, no sonograms in those days. But uh, at least after they were born, there was uh, frequently, when the children were just months old, they actually made uh, marriage uh, alliances. This is more happened amongst the wealthy than it did amongst the poor, of course. But uh, here, here is a situation where this man knows that he has not as much to offer as a younger man in the sense of youth and vitality and strength, but of course he has much more to offer in the case of wisdom and wealth and godliness. Boaz told her 
that she had no reason to fear because she had done what was right. And he would pursue both redemption of the property and leveret marriage. He then gave her the highest possible compliment. Of all the people in Bethlehem, he said, know that you are a woman of excellence. A woman of excellence. By that, he's not saying you are able to do needlepoint better than anybody else, you know, or, or you're able to glean grain better than anybody else. No. What he is saying is that she was a woman of great integrity and honor. He is complimenting her character, not what she can do, but her character, who she was. In fact, the word translated excellence can be translated as strength, as valor, as honor. In the New Testament, we would say of her that she was truly Christ-like in character. Her life testified to the reality of her faith in Yahweh. She had come to know God in a way that was life-transforming. Everyone who knew of her thought more highly of God because they saw in her attributes of the Divine One. Mercy, integrity, faithfulness, kindness, loving kindness, which is one of the key teachings of this whole book. Grace, virtue, these things were exhibited in her. Now, obviously, uh, as I say these things, I, I, I don't want you to get the feeling that I thought she was some, you know, Madonna sitting on a statue, on a post somewhere. She was a human being. She had her failings and she had her weaknesses. But um, all of what God had done in her life overshadowed everything else, and she was seen as a woman of great virtue. So, what does all that mean to us? I think the book of Ruth and the character of Ruth challenges us today to walk our talk, to walk our talk. Our verbal testimony is of very little value unless it is validated by our lifestyle. And that is something that seems to be lost in modern America. You and I are well aware, although maybe at times we have a tendency to forget, that it is the silent witness of our lives that opens the door to the verbal witness. You all have run into people, I'm sure, as I have, who, who are the buttonholers. They grab you by the lapel and say, do you know Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're going to hell. Well, usually you, you have a negative response to that kind of an approach. Um, what you need to do is, of course, if you're a non-believer, see someone live their faith, the honesty and the integrity of their lives that bears fruit in real everyday life, and then you're willing to hear what they might have to say. So many who profess to be Christians in America today live in a way that is indistinguishable from the world. And I, I know you're probably reading this too as I am. The Barna polls and uh, Gallup polls that are being taken in the last few years are really indicating this, that people who call themselves Christians, born again, who, who live and function within the church, are living in such a way that you couldn't tell them from anybody else in the world by looking at their lives. Just a few hundred disciples of Jesus in the first century were told in the book of Acts, turned the world upside down. The Roman Empire experienced the explosion of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a matter of a few decades. The spoken word did in a shorter period of time than it took Islam with his sword to spread their faith. And, and the Christian faith penetrated clear to the Straits of Gibraltar in the first century, and there were groups of Christians in every major city in the Roman Empire by the year 100. 
Did that happen because the disciples were indistinguishable from the rest of the people? No, no, absolutely not. And yet, in America today, if you believe the polls, one out of every three Americans claims to be born again. That would be 90 million people in this country are supposedly born again. Well, let's be realistic about that, and let's cut that back a ways. And let's say 10% of the population is, is born again. That would be 27 million people. 27 million people. Even 27 million people ought to make a powerful dent in this country because there were nowhere near 27 million disciples running around. There were just a few hundred of them. Of course, the population of the Roman Empire was probably only a third to a quarter of what the U.S. population is at this particular time. But nevertheless, the ratio between the population and the number of disciples of Christ was a far larger ratio than between those who are believers today or claim to be and the population of this country. And yet we live in one of the most decadent civilizations ever to exist on this planet. How many, I mean, we, you've heard it said many times, as I have, how much like Rome we're becoming. And, and this is being driven home even more and more as you see things like Smackdown, you know, where, where they're hitting each other with chairs and killing each other <clears throat> on TV, and kids are watching this stuff and, and being raised to know that it's all right to smack the nearest guy uh, the best way you can. Uh, if you've got a problem with him, just to say the least of the problems. Today in America, there are tens of millions of supposed born-again Christians who are making very little difference in this society. It doesn't add up. And I think the reason is that a good portion of those who claim to be Christians refuse to do what Jesus said makes it very clear to the world that we are believers, and that is to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. One of the, one of the biggest problems I find today is uh, people are, don't like to take the Bible at face value. If it says literally this, well, no, wait a minute, there's got to be another way to understand this because God understands our society and, and He knows that this, that, and the other thing, even though the Bible says it's wrong and immoral, can't really be because so many people are doing it. And, and you can be a Christian and, and be this too, you know, and whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. I think having all of this world's goods and pleasures is generally incompatible with denying ourselves taking up the cross and following Him. If we are constantly occupied with <coughs> obtaining and doing what makes us happy, we have very little time and strength and wealth to advance the kingdom of God. You can tell I have grandchildren because I will every once in a while quote from Veggie Tales. But there is a veggie tale called Madame Blueberry, and some of you probably know that one. And she is looking for a happy heart, a happy heart. And she goes to the stuff mart to find all this stuff so that she can have a happy heart. But along the way, she discovers that you can't get a happy heart at the stuff mart. Uh, all this stuff will not give you a happy heart. And I think that's where Christianity in, today in America has gone to the stuff mart. And we're trying to be happy Christians with all this stuff rather than realizing that it doesn't come through stuff. It comes through faith, through obedience, and, and through following the example of Christ. And I, I think that as God will purify his church, and it probably won't be a pleasant process, but as that happens, the church will become more on fire and, and become more what he's called it to be. And, uh, I've not read, yet read any of the left-behind books, which probably many of you have read, 
which are the rage now, and, and some people, of course, avoid them because they are very dispensationally oriented, but whatever the case may be. It seems to, from what I have been able to interpret, and I listened to the interview of the two authors on Larry King Live, some of you may have seen that very interesting program, that whatever you believe about all this timing and everything, there is a day of purification coming for the church in America and, and worldwide. And he's making for himself, preparing for himself a bride, and that bride is going to have to be clean and pure and white. And so I think that will change church. Let me read is in closing here today from First John passage I'm sure you know well. First John chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Focusing on the will of God is, I think, the key to living as Christ would call us to live. And this was the focus of Ruth, and this was the focus of Boaz. And I think that's why they are viewed as, as a man and a woman. The term of excellence is used both of Ruth and of Boaz persons of great honor and virtue and valor. If Boaz had said no to Ruth, could Ruth have been in trouble for going into Could he have caused trouble for him? Could and would, I think, are two different things. I suppose he could, but he would not. Being the man of the character that he was, right. he, I don't think he would have done that. But somebody that didn't have his character, just with the way things happened, if he had said no, could it have been something that could have caused her shame? Only if it had been known. It was sort of like Mary and Joseph. Um, only as it would have been broadcast that uh, she was pregnant but not by Joseph uh, would it have been a problem. And so I think for her, there was no legal, no, nothing legally wrong with what she did. But it could have been perceived uh, as, uh, as an immoral act, even though she had no intent of that.